Welcome to Mormon Visual Culture, a podcast presented by the Zion Art Society and hosted by me, Micah Christensen. This year, we will celebrate the 50th anniversary of President Spencer W. Kimball's landmark talk, The Gospel Vision of the Arts, through discussions with prominent artists, collectors, and thinkers, each one choosing an artwork that has inspired them and shaped LDS culture. Today, we have Brad Tier, an artist who works in a number of media. Raised in Kansas, he studied at Utah State University, and during the 90s, illustrated for publishers such as the New York Times and Random House. Brad has been selected for the prestigious Maynard Dixon and Forbes Trinchera, am I saying that right? Trinchera, yes. Trinchera residencies and been featured in American Artist Magazine. For the past 15 years or so, Brad has been one of the principal designers and illustrators working on The Friend Magazine. We'll talk about Brad's own work, but first, Brad, um, welcome. Thank you. And tell us about uh, which work you've chosen for us to uh, discuss today. I chose Autumn's Gold, Harvey's Pond, Oil on Panel, 1929. By LeConte Stewart. That's right. I'm thrilled that you chose LeConte mm. Stewart because when we proposed this this uh, podcast and we've talked with a, a few people who are going to be be guests almost all of them are overtly religious subjects or themes or narratives of some kind but i think few people um when they think of landscapes um think um that these are works that were often created for and collected by the church aggressively in fact and leconte stewart's work the, the one that we're talking about today, done in 1929, is in the Church Museum's, uh, Church History Museum's collection. It is. And uh, it's one of his larger works. It's one of the, uh, um, one of, one of the works that he called himself, he called works that were done during the 1920s and 30s, the family jewels. Uh-huh. So I think he would be happy with, with the era and the subject for the work you've chosen. Good. Good. So, so tell us, why, why did you choose LeConte Stewart and this landscape in particular? Well, I, I think I um, can safely say the paintings I like best of his are the, the ones that have thicker pigment on it. Huh. Now, I don't know if this was done in the studio. Maybe you know a little bit of background on this. It's hard to know with LeConte. <laughs> we can talk about that, but, but keep, keep going and we'll, we'll get to that. But... Um, so I, I actually don't know if he did a lot of his work in studio, but to me it looks like a studio painting. Um, one that maybe, uh, he, you know, he may have painted it in a day or, or one or two sessions, you know, while the paint was still wet. Right. But it just has a lot of paint on it. I really love the texture. I, it also has uh, one of his hallmarks that I really love is really high chroma. Hmm. And I, <clears throat> I think in this era he... he um, tended to have a little higher chroma. During the Depression, uh, his paint got a little thinner and some of the, the chroma got a little weaker, the little brightness of some of the pigments got a little weaker, in my, to my eye. Right, right. Maybe a little more, um, there, there, was, there was kind of a neutral palette that he chose during that time. Right. And, and uh, it, it, it kind of goes along with the theme of the Depression era, and this is just exactly. before that. Yeah. It's actually right after he had returned from, um, he was born in Utah, rural Utah, and then he moved to um, Woodstock, New York, where the Art Students League of New York had established a satellite. And the Art Students League of New York, where other artists that are well-known in American and in um, LDS art cultures, people like Mahan Ray Young 
and Minerva Tyker studied the Art Students League of New York, and they studied in New York, and their work was principally figurative. But in in uh, Wood in, in the 1920s, uh, there was a satellite set up in Woodstock that focused not on figurative work, but on landscape work. And LeConte participated in that, and um, I think this is pretty typical of. It was very high chroma, the okay. kind of work that he did during that period and just following it. He also went to the Pennsylvania Academy of Fine Arts while he was out there, came back to Utah and and uh, did this scene. And Now, would that be during Edward, Edward Redfield's era? It would have. Okay. Yeah, absolutely. That makes sense. Absolutely. And can you see the influence of, I can. of, of Redfield mm-hmm. in it? Yeah. Uh, I think it's something that waxed and waned within his own output. Uh, LeConte Stewart lived to be 99 years old. He died in 1990, and he did maybe, even if you take out the years that he worked, and he worked consistently from the 1920s until the late 80s, he is one of the most prolific painters that I have ever known. Over some some people, I know that uh, there was a book written on him uh, in the early 2000s that... Um, uh, cataloged and and claimed that there was as many as ten or fifteen thousand works that he did in his lifetime. So even by, you know, if you had cut him off in the sixties or seventies, he would have been, he would have been prolific. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. And this goes to this point that I think is worth um, worth spending some time on, that you talked about the difference between working out in plain air, or him working in the studio and. I don't know if we can answer it for this specific painting, but I think it's worth discussing his approach in in general. So, um, um, I do, did you know people who ever painted with with Leconte? You know, I I, I do. Yeah, yeah. Um, do you have any stories that you've heard? You know, about you know, not not with? offhand. You know, he was famous. This this painting in particular is it's titled Harvey's Pond which if you search for Harvey's Pond, you won't find it, but you'll find Harvey's Farm, which is located in Kaysville, mm-hmm. where LeConte established himself and painted most of his life. And if you, there's stories that if you went into an open field into Kaysville, anytime between 1929 and, uh, or 1925 and 1989, you could have thrown a rock and probably hit LeConte <laughs> working out in the field. Mm-hmm. And he would do sometimes four or five paintings in a single day. We've had, uh, I've seen paintings over the years that have gone to restores that had bits of sand or dirt lodged in the oil paint because he would be working in the middle of a windstorm. And and I think um, this, like you say, looks like a work that he started in the field, but there's a lot of structure to it. There's a lot of, of structure may not be the right word, there's a lot of impasto, heavy buildup of paint in it. Yeah. It seems like it had been worked on, maybe started in fields, but then in addition, worked on in a studio. Po- yeah, possibly. Now, you are, uh, uh, you're an artist yourself, landscape artist. Right. Um, you've had a lot of different genres, genres you've worked in. We, we, we'll, talk, we'll talk a little bit about that, but let's, let's specifically focus on your landscape work and how it is similar and differs to Lacan's approach. Do you do you work starting in plain air and then finishing in the studio? Do you work exclusively in in the studio? How tell tell us about your approach? I, I work a lot of different ways, and <clears throat> I've never really settled down on an exact approach. 
I, you know, thus far, I don't really consider myself a plein air painter. Okay. So, um, but I have, I have, uh, you know, done sketches in the field and then worked up, you know, a larger piece from that. Why not? Why not consider yourself a plein air painter? What's the? Well, not that I'm saying you should, but I'm asking, what's the distinction in your mind? You know, for me, it's just a comfort level. I mean, you know, I mean, we know as artists, we know if we know what we're doing. You know, right. and if you're out there just sort of floundering around and just kind of, uh, you know, not having a lot of, you know, it's like you don't know your process. You don't know what you're trying to do. Until I know what I'm trying to do out in the field, I don't think I'll ever consider myself a plein air painter. That's not to say that yeah. some of my paintings haven't been successful. You know, I have sold, you know, some. But it's like, what, what, what was I trying to get? You know, what was I after? And I don't think I've ever really answered that question. You know, it's, it's, a, it's a question that, it, it, I, I love the humility of your answer. It, 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 makes, it makes it sound like you're green, which you're not in any, in any, any terms. But it has to do with approach. For years, you worked as a, a fine woodblock artist. Right. And woodblock is, by its very nature, something that is incredibly structured. It's kind of the opposite of an observational plein air painting, mm -hmm. right? Well, tell I, us about that. I, you know, I do sketches in the field. You know, and they'd mm -hmm. be plein air sketches. You know, right? But um, and then I work my woodcuts from that. So, <clears throat> you know, I, I guess I just don't, you know, feel comfortable in the genre of, you know, as a as a plein air painter. I, I love to be yeah. outside. I love to study nature. Some of my best woodcuts are from sketches that I, I did entirely, you know, on site. You know, it strikes me that the the work of a Lacan Stewart, which is, in, 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 may, correct me if I'm wrong, which it can often be, and maybe to a fault, totally observational, mm -hmm. Lacan Stewart's work. To the point that he's not so much structuring everything that he's seen into a way that draws the eye around deliberately, but he's painting almost deliberately exactly what he sees as he sees it. And then the variation isn't so much about structuring the composition of it through shapes and form, but it's through how he's laying down the paint, it's the colors he's choosing as he's doing it. Is that accurate in your experience of looking at Lacan's work? I, I think it is. I think a lot of his paintings are very much portraits of a, of a particular place. Interesting. And um, you know, I'm I'm less concerned with that. And in fact, I'm less concerned. I, I don't really love Lacan's work that is obviously you know portraits of a mm. place. You know, it seems like he <clears throat> might be getting a little bit too bogged down in some detail. I mean, for my eye, you know. But um, I, I like this piece that we're discussing today a little bit because it has that broader approach. Yeah. I mean, the details are, are very abbreviated. And um, you can really see sometimes uh, he had a kind of a pointillistic period hmm. and where, where he used little dashes, very impressionistic right. or pointillistic. And those t tend to be very much portraits, I, I feel. They seem like you know, he's, he's very meticulous about recording every little detail. You know, he was, a, he was an incredible draftsman. You know, as you know, his, his sketches are amazing. Right, his sketches are. And he was rigorously trained. And then he went on to be a professor from, I think it was 1938 or 39 until 1958. He was a professor of painting at the University mm -hmm. of Utah. And part of his courses, when you talk with people, is this kind of rigorous approach where in graphite, he would have people do thumbnail sketches, and we've—I've seen a number of those over the years. So he would—he would structure them in a kind of 
broad pencil strokes he would go through, but then it was that 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 uh, those brush strokes that seemed to make the character. And when you talk with people who know him or know his work very well, often dealers who have the most experience with his works and see thousands of them over the years, they date it almost exclusively by the character of the stroke and by the palette. Uh-huh. And that point, and you, they'll say, oh, it's 50s, it's a very small pinpoint oh it's the it's the 1920s or 30s because of the you know maybe broader strokes that he's using during that time there there was a period when he he was either transitioning into or out of pointillism where some of the skies have that kind of pointillistic yeah uh thing what what area was that pointillistic do do you know what you know i'm not the best expert on him but i know that a lot of that dates to the 1950s okay 60s sometimes even the, the 70s and occasionally he'd go back and forth so it's not always it's not always clear to me. I am not the best person to ask. It's it's like it's like collecting baseball cards in a way. Some people, the people who know, um, it's a real inside game, and the people who know the stats on Lacan Stewart can tell within a moment. They're almost forensic scientists mm-hmm. about his work. He had a huge influence and role within Utah art for many years. Um, and I guess that's a question that I want to get to. You came from Kansas. And you studied at Utah State University. Why did you choose Utah State? And I want to ask you about your encounters with Lacan and his students when you came here. But first, let's talk about that move. Mm-hmm. Well, uh, initially, when I came out west, I studied at the University of Idaho. Okay. I, I had a scholarship there. And so <clears throat> it was kind of a no-brainer. Just, you know, uh, it was easy and, and cheap. But I got frustrated with the fine art program there. Okay. And... Um, uh, a friend from Kansas uh, told me a lot about, uh, he was an illustrator, uh, about Utah State. And so I decided I wanted to get a little bit more, uh, you know, academic training, you might say, a little bit, you know, mm-hmm. rather than um, kind of abstract expressionism that was very popular at, U- at the University of U- or Idaho at the time. <clears throat> so so Utah State, in, in, in what era are we talking about? Uh, this would be in the, uh, 1980. 1980. It had yeah. more of a reputation for some traditional approach to to teaching. Right, right. For, you know, for there. a public school, it had a very good reputation at the time. Huh. And it's it's also, I imagine, uh, a kind of a paradise for a landscape artist. You know, you know and maybe that, you weren't doing that at the time. You know, that was another interesting thing. My my father, who uh, is is in agricultural re- research, we came to a convention at Utah State when I was, I was like eight or something. And it's and a I, huge hub for agriculture. It is. Work, yeah. today, then yeah. and today. Yeah. And I just thought it was one of the most beautiful places I'd ever seen. I really mm. couldn't imagine anything more beautiful. So it, there was that too. And when we moved huh. east, I always intended to come back. You know, Lacan, um, I think something we should address since we're talking about his influence on Mormon visual culture. Uh, he was born in 1891. That was the year that the art missionaries who did the temple, um, uh, J.B. Fairbanks, Edwin Evans, Loris Pratt, and uh, I'm missing one. It'll come to the top of my head in a few mm-hmm. moments. Were, um, were sent to Paris to study. And even though they were studying at the Academy Julienne, which was figurative-based, they went um, and they hired a private artist whose name was Rigolo, R-I-G-O-L-O-T, who hugely influenced their uh, landscape work. And they brought to Utah, especially Fairbanks and uh, and Evans, a uh, an approach to landscape that I think stayed as part of our culture. Hafen, John Hafen is the artist I was missing. Hafen especially spoke eloquently about 
landscape as a spiritual genre of art, which was, I guess, kind of new um, to some people. Mm -hmm. we, it, it, when we're thinking about art with a capital A and fine art and its role in religion, people don't usually marry landscape as the, a predominant form of religious expression in art, the landscape itself. Hafen wrote about it quite eloquently. And I can't, and, and, and I know that LeConte was influenced by Hafen and J.B. Fairbanks. But even though those four artists that came out of that school had an influence on, on the number of landscape artists, the focus of landscape art that we had in Utah, if you had to count today the number of landscape artists we had and tie them back to an artist who hugely influenced them, I think at one point, Fern Swanson, as director of the Springfield Museum of Art, when he was a director, said that we had 10,000 artists working in the Utah, Idaho, Arizona region that submitted works to his show, to the shows at the Springville, and 75% of them were landscape artists. I would imagine huge number of those artists tied to LeConte and his approach mm -hmm. and his large and his career. But I wonder, as someone coming from Kansas, and there's a long preamble to the question, to Utah, was LeConte a force in the 1980s, in the in either directly or indirectly, in the kind of art? Was there something different about the Utah landscape? And did it have LeConte's fingerprints on it? Well, you know, I, I came a little bit late to LeConte's work. Uh, in fact, I was introduced to his work at the, the, the show that was very... Um, important at the church museum. That's right. They had a great um, exhibition, a retrospective of his work. And in, I'm thinking that was 87 or 88. Yeah, yeah. Because So that was right before we, we left to go to New York City. Linda Gibbs, I think, was the one who did the, Dr. Gibbs uh, uh, did that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, no. I Well, I mean, unless she did the same one that was, th this was way back. Way back. Yeah, this okay. isn't the, the, the show that was um, up at the university and the, well, there was one that was kind of that, and that's a more recent. Yeah, one. that was a recent yeah. one. Yeah. Now this yeah. was you know eighty eight or eighty seven okay. somewhere okay. back there, but um, so I was still sort of you know I was very much you know going to be an illustrator. I hadn't really I knew that I wanted to do landscape at some point, mm -hmm. but you know I was still unformed as what I want to do or or what kind of you know style I would even you know settle on ultimately. So why? Um, so you wanted to do illustration. You still you had an interest in landscape. I did. You eventually come back to it. Let's talk a little bit about your your uh, woodblock illustration period. Okay, I um, I kind of how did I I kind of backed into it a little bit. I I, I came from a town by the name of Manhattan, <clears throat> which is a university town. So in Kansas. I, yeah, I would not have, Manhattan. Yeah, not, New York, yeah right. right. Yeah, I so I should have had more access to art than I than I remember having. But it seemed pretty limited at the time. This is, you know, of course, pre-internet. It's Thomas Hart Benton country, isn't it? Right. Um, yeah. Right? That, that was, I mean, I knew of him. He, he did some murals up at the state capitol. Um, you know, he did some, he did a, I think he did the mural that was on the Kansas album, the rock band. You know? So that was, <laughs> yeah. you know, you know yeah. John Brown, you know. So, I mean, and, and that was largely my exposure to art was, you know, pop culture, you know, comic books, you know, cover, mm. cover of uh, science fiction and fantasy books hmm. that sort of thing it, with the exception of there was a book of Rockwell Kent's work hmm. uh, I it was one of his uh, you know travelogues in the library in my junior high and I was just completely enamored with his work 
Hmm. I mean, he has a very strong uh, design sensibility, strong use of uh, darks and lights. Hmm. So, you know, what I did... was his medium? Um, well, a lot of people think it was woodcut or wood engraving, but it, it actually, the, the lion's share of his work is pen and ink. Hmm. Or brushing ink, but it, it looked imitative almost. It is. Of, it is. It's sort of like Franklin Booth, where he sort of imitated in pen and ink the style of a, of a wood engraving. Interesting. But he he later did wood engravings and wood cuts, and mm. they're beautiful. They're just incredible. So is that one got you involved in woodblock at first? Is looking at his work and well, thinking of it. Well, that's that's how I fell in love with with his work. Uh-huh. Yeah, and um, how did you end up in New York? Well, um, in in art school, it was either you went to L.A. or New York. Okay. And, you know, depending on what market you wanted to uh, work in, um, I've always loved books. So New York was the book field, you know, book publishing mm -hmm. uh, area. So, uh, you know, New York or L.A. was more posters and, uh, you know, the entertainment industry. What was so, the scope of your work in New York? Uh, my, the first job, I, I went into the city. We, we actually settled um, in a little town across from... Uh, where LeConte Stewart actually went to school in Rhinebeck, New York, across the Hudson. So mm. we're up the river a little bit. But Beautiful area for landscape. It is, it is. And I did do some landscape painting while I was there. I, you know, not, it wasn't you know, incredibly successful, but uh, I got my feet wet, definitely, while we were there. But um, so I take the train in, and, and my first day into New York City, I, I got a job with the New York Times. So Your first day in? Yeah, yeah. Boy, that's going to ruin a lot of people's expectations. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it, it was strange. It, I, I, I didn't feel like I was quite up to the task, but it was it was a hot day, and uh, I needed to get out of the heat. So I, I knew the New York New York Times office would be air conditioned. So I went in, <laughs> talked to, and, and within a matter of minutes, I was talking to Stephen Heller, which is he's like a legend in, yeah. in the design. Uh, industry and and in a matter of minutes I was talking to him and I was just sitting here kind of looking at him and going this is this is pretty cool you know he's thumbing through my portfolio and he had a job for me so I worked for the New York Times for about six months. What did you do for them? I, I mostly worked on op-ed page um, and like it was funny when I'd come into town to um, you know look for assignments you know drop off my off my portfolio or whatever uh, you could pick up an assignment at the Times, like maybe do a letter to the editor or something like that. And, and I would bring my uh, scratchboard tools in and actually do illustrations while I was in visiting, you know, the so, city for the day. So, so when you said you do the op-ed page, what kind of work were you doing? If I were to open up the page and see your work on it, what would it look like? Uh, you know, you know, the op-ed has, you know, letters and has, uh, there's the editorial, of course, and that's right. often uh, illustrated. And... Um, or sidebar, you know, illustrations. So it was just that section, any illustration that would appear in that section. Okay. So in addition to this, you're also doing work for publishers and you're right. doing your own fine art woodblock prints, right? Right. Uh, well, I, I initially from the scratchboard work. Which scratchboard. Scratch, scratchboard's a, a technique that was evolved to imitate wood engraving. Okay. So now I have to kind of backtrack a little bit. When when I was in Logan, uh, I bought I stumbled into a, a, a shop that was going out of business, a letter press shop, mm -hmm. and I bought a press. So we had a letter press, uh, you know, printing press. 
back before it was cool. Well, I mean, we, we dragged it out to New York City. So I had a press in my the basement of our house in New York. <laughs> and, and I didn't even really do wood engravings or, <laughs> or, or wood cuts. You know, it's just sort of, I mean, I knew, I guess, intuitively that I wanted to do it someday. Yeah. So since I had this press, I was doing scratch work, I started doing book covers hmm. in, a, in a letterpress style. Interesting. Uh, woodcut style. So I started with, strangely enough, wood engraving, which is a very strict discipline. Right. And uh, kind of evolved towards woodcut. So were you looking towards European styles, Japanese styles? Because there, there are very varying approaches that go over centuries for these kinds of things. Did you draw on a particular artist or genre? Well, I mean, you know, Rockwell Kent, he was the man for me. Right. And I mean, a lot of my images from the era are definitely pay homage to his, his work. Mm. So, you know, um, but um, the, it was mostly European. I, I really like the Northeast U.S. wood engravers. Mm. It has it has kind of a cold, kind of an intellectual approach. Who are some of the, the, the names that stick out to you? You know, there, you know it's been a while since I've really looked at a lot of the illustrators in the era. But let's see, McCurdy, I think, hmm. if I'm remembering that correctly, he was a very prominent illustrator at that time. Okay. Uh, Barry Moser was was very big back hmm. in the day. I think he's still working. Um, so, you know, they were they had a similarity of style, a lot of detail, a lot of darks. So you you kind of heat on a on a hot summer day pushes you into the New York Times in a career <laughs> in uh in in the uh, in the news and publishing business, right? And at some point, you make a, a switch and you come to Utah. What what uh, what prompted that? How did that take place? Well, I probably about yeah, it was about the time I left the new, the Times. I uh, I got a, an agent, mm -hmm. so I I had the agent for quite a few years. And the last year we were in New York City, I realized I'd never gone into the city to get a job because my agent was getting. 100% of my work. How long had you been there at that point? We'd been there about three years. Uh -huh. Yeah. So um, I, I thought it's a, it's an incredibly beautiful place to live, but it's very expensive. Yeah. And we, we'd bought a home in, in Providence, Utah, that we were renting. So we had a home waiting for us. So we thought, well, maybe it's time to come. Our daughter was about the right age to come back and get reacquainted with cousins and so on. So mm -hmm. uh, we thought it was a good time to, to come back. And what kind of work did you do when you, when you came to Utah? It was exactly the same work I did in New York. It was, you know, in almost 100% New York publishers. Mm -hmm. So you're working on a national level. You're, you're, you're working from Utah, but you're working with your agent still. Right. Who's based in New York, and and you're you're continuing that relationship. So you're you're kind of you're you're kind of uh, what's the word I'm looking for? You're remotely doing art for these publishers. You, you're traveling back back occasionally. And how long does that work last? How long are you doing that? That that lasted. Um, let's see. Came back and but we did that for about seven years. For about seven years. Yeah. So at some point you make a switch to where you're working for the uh, the church's friend magazine, right? And when did when did that happen? That was in two thousand. Okay. Yeah. That happened in the year two thousand. And uh, what kind of work do you do? Tell us about the work that you do for the uh, the friend magazine. Well, I my my title is senior designer, and I basically lay out 
the pages. You know, there there are three of us, three designers, and um, we we divide up the magazine and we lay out, each lay out lay out a third of it. So okay. and then then uh, two of us are illustrators as well, and so we'll you know illustrate um, you know an inside illustration, occasionally the cover, you know some spot illustrations. I imagine um, that you in your work working for the magazine have a huge range of artists that you work with and there are a lot of LDS artists from you know figurative to otherwise is there this this uh, I don't know exactly how to ask this question but you've been there since about 2000 mm-hmm. um, are there trends that you notice that started when you were working there is there a trend now that you see emerging you know i've i have worked there for 17 years now and and i definitely have seen trends yeah when when i first started working there there was definitely more of a trend towards you know analog illustration you know just handmade illustration and now it's we're probably 95 percent digital okay is it um has, has the skill we're, we're we're famous or we like to I hear artists like to pride themselves on on being known as a region of the country that has a large concentration of figurative artists and I know that the friend magazine um, has a lot of figurative art in it um, do we um, do we live up to our reputation with the artists <laughs> You're working. You're working with. That's a kind of hard question to answer. Do we? No, no. It's definitely. Yeah, it's definitely. We definitely do. Um, a lot of the LDS illustrators we work with. They're so busy. They they can't really work with us as much as they'd like. Yeah. So you know that's a good sign. I mean, it means they're very healthy. The Friend Magazine has a, a unique place in in magazines. It has, I would imagine, one of the largest distributions of of a magazine. And at a time when a lot of magazines have gone entirely digital, you've maintained a, a, a physical presence. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I, I, I agree. Um, I know a lot of publishers, they've either had to, you know, consolidate or, you know, cut a lot of corners that, you know, we haven't really had to do. And we, in fact, we've probably expanded, the, you know, the way our, our magazine looks and some of the, you know, uh, qualities that readers want to see in our magazine, you know. Did I, I am, am I right in that it's it's actually increased the quality of its paper and and uh, and the thickness of its paper? Right, right. Just recently, we got a new paper inside. So it's even gone yeah. the opposite way. That rather, than right, right, exactly, back, exactly. We're, we're probably one of the few kids' magazines that's still expanding, growing. You yeah. know, looking looking good. Well, you know, you've had this very this varied career where you've gone from um, from illustration and woodblock. You come back and you're working as a designer and illustrator for a large distribution magazine that's relying on those skills. And then you decide to start painting again. Mm-hmm. And is its initial expression landscape? Yep, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I when, when I returned from New York, my, my intent was to, I, I had kind of a weird uh, Graphic, to, graphic novel project going. Before you say anything, I've got to apologize. There's a little beeping going on in the background. We do record this in downtown Salt Lake City, so... And there's a lot of construction going on right now, so I apologize to, to readers. You're not imagining that beeping, but we're going to keep going and plow through. Okay, anyway. good, good. So keep going. I'm sorry. It's Dad. not bothering me. So, <laughs> um, but yeah, when I came home to Utah, um, my wife's from Utah, so we do we do consider Utah our home now, and I still love Kansas, of course. But um, I, I had a strange graphic novel project I was working on, and I, I intended to 
dedicate about half of it to the graphic novel and about half of it to painting. That was mm -hmm. my strategy to kind of move forward. You know, the graphic uh, novel project didn't really, uh, never really found an audience. So I had to kind of, you know, make do, but uh, that was the goal. So, but mm -hmm. but um, I always intended to do the landscape and have that kind of evolve until it took over my entire career. Did your work as an illustrator and, and woodblock artist affect the way you approach landscape and if so how um you know that's been a that's been a mystery for me because one of the things that was really strange was uh i, I think my woodcuts you know they kind of became a, you know rose to a professional level earlier than my painting did Hmm. And so I, I thought that I could easily transition over from woodcut, which, which frankly came very easy to me. Hmm. Uh, it, it wasn't really, really difficult. In fact, some of the first uh, illustrations I did in woodcut and scratchboard were in my portfolio that really? I took to New York. Which is unusual for an artist because usually it is. those, those uh, juvenile works that you do don't end up lasting. Yeah, right? yeah. So, so I, I have kind of a background of, and I think this might be what I, the case in plein air painting is. I'm I'm kind of just ruminating on plein air, you know, mm -hmm. thinking about it. And then when I finally decide to you know, kind of cut loose with it, I'll be it'll, I'll find that plein air is very satisfying to me. So it's more of an internal struggle that right. you're dealing with, even at the moment. Right, right. It's like sorting through sort of in, indefinable uh, object uh, obstacles, you know, that I I really can't you know articulate fully. One of the first things you mentioned when we were talking about Lacan is the application of paint. Uh -huh. you know, anyone who's experienced in person your paintings, which I think in this age of Instagram and, 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 uh, and blogs and so forth is still an essential aspect of art, something we can keep holding on to, right? The paintings uh -huh. still need to be experienced in person. Yeah. Anyone who experiences your pieces in person will know that there is a thick application of paint and it plays a huge role in your works talk to us about how you apply paint well um you know when i really first became sort of uh, in love with really thick paint textured paint i've always loved texture mm -hmm. you know whether whether it's the illusion of texture or you know actual texture you know i love the blocks woodcut blocks i love the texture of it you know yeah there's this there, there really is uh with with that paper which is often thick a kind of uh, lines and depth that comes out of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. You know, I love to emboss the woodcut after I'm done. I mean, just just anything to give it kind of that three dimensionality. I just huh. uh, there, there's a, an odd attraction. But um, I can't remember what year it was. It was probably the first year we were in New York. I went to a show of Van Gogh paintings, hmm. and this was about the same time that illustration was starting to to show signs of changing. In fact, I, I, I actually worked with the first uh, version of Photoshop. So mm. that would have been, what year was that? Like 87, I think, uh -huh. or 88. So, no, 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 89, 89. Okay. And um, so, you know, there was this idea that there was something new on the horizon and we didn't know what it was and we didn't know what it meant for artists. Yeah. But to me, when I went to that Van Gogh show, I mean, I really resonated with the tactile quality of it. I mean, obviously I can't, you know, you can't touch a painting. Right, but it's, it's, it's one of those things that I think we've, we've all just because of pop culture. He was one of those artists that was sucked into pop culture 
in the 60s, 70s, and 80s, and we all experienced seeing some visual form of it, but it didn't mean that we all saw the physical pieces, right? which is very different right. than, than the posters that are on college dorm rooms. Right. I mean, some of the reproductions are okay, but right. I, I have never seen a Van Gogh reproduced anywhere near the original. Do you, do you agree? Do you agree with me? Oh, yeah. His yeah, paintings absolutely. elusive. There's something an elusive quality. You would need quality. a three D printer, and yeah. they would, and and even those would be difficult because they are somewhat sculptural, and the way that the paint is mixed is different. Mm-hmm. So you know, I was thinking about this is all sort of subconscious. I mean, I wasn't you know plotting a a, a route to uh, you know painting with thick paint or anything, but intuitively I just knew or I understood that the future for fine art had to include. The, the the object you mm-hmm. know um, you know creating you know an artifact because um, it, you know art that just exists in a digital space is somehow um, is somehow unsatisfying it's too ephemeral hmm. to it, it it's missing something that I can't quite put my finger on that's really essential to the joy and satisfaction that we derive from from fine art is this is this um, is this use of thick paint almost a way of forcing it to not be ephemeral, <laughs> forcing it to not be something that can be seen digitally? You know, I think I think that's part of it. Hmm. I, I noticed uh, early on in my career that illustrators that reproduced well mm-hmm. had to kind of tweak their work in order for it to print well. Interesting. And, but their their originals suffered for that. Now, that's a kind of an irony. In other words, they're painting for like a goal that they can't see, you know, visually, but it's, it's, you know, it's hitting a kind of an imaginary mark. Yeah. You know, so um, that actually is is a downside of illustration, but it's an upside of fine art Mm -hmm. because the fine art will will be valued no matter what. Right. And in fact, if if you post something online and you say, you know, you you really, you got to see this you know, live, you know, you've got to see this in real life to really understand what I'm doing here. That's, that's a plus. Yeah. Yeah. And I, I, this is something that I think both you and I, we've had a, we've had conversations with this before and there's a phrase that you've used, a word that I like quite a bit. And that's that it's encoding. Uh It's that someone who's creating a work of art, that the original work of art that has been made, that has had all of this labor put into it by the creator, has been encoded somehow with something that is, I don't know, metaphysical, maybe it can't be measured in a way, um, in in uh, scientific terms, they've used the, I, I've, I've heard the ter- term the labor heuristic of art, which um, when people have been told that a work of art has had an enormous amount of time put into it. They value it more, dramatically more, mm-hmm. even as much as a hundred times more than something that they see as simply a reproduction. And so a lot of artists play on this. They play by talking about how much work has gone into a piece of work. But you're talking about something even more elemental, I think, which isn't a discussion about how much work has gone into it of, I used all live models when I was working on this, so there's no photography. You're talking about even absent any discussion about it the you can sense from physically experiencing the work that work has gone into it mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is that right <clears throat> yeah I, I um I, certainly certainly you know I'm, I'm trying to you know come to grips with exactly what you mean here but i mean mark rothko he said um you know a painting isn't 
a record of an, of an experience. It is an experience. Huh. And, and I, I agree with that in the sense that um, every, pain, every stroke you put in, is, it's like a performance. And the painting is a record, a record of that. So it's, it's a record of a very specific moment, and it's mm -hmm. also a record of a very specific frame of mind. When you look back at your works that you've been doing over the past several years, can you see those as, can you remember the moments that they were painted and it recalls specifically to mind that era, that emotion, that time? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, my favorite paintings invariably are when I'm, I'm totally in the flow, you know, and it's just to look at that painting, you know, evokes that experience. So how, going back to Lacan Stewart, those experiences for you often happen in the studio, right? Thus far, yes. Mm -hmm. Yeah. When that's a big contrast with the way that Lacan works, because Lacan is working out in the field and mm -hmm. he's maybe working on four or five at a time, right? And he's doing this very quick portrait, but yours is very. I, I, tell tell me about what you would your experience. Looking at Lacan, does it show up in Lacan for you that that is the difference in your approaches? I mean, uh, you know, I his paintings, you know, they definitely have that sense of flow. You know, I mean, he obviously was able to achieve that state. Yeah. And, um, you know, I think, you know, some of them, uh, I think, do look like studies. And by that, I mean, they look more studious or, you know, he's, he's trying to ferret something out and he's struggling, you know. So, you know, that's how my plein air paintings look to me. As, as I'm trying to discover something, I'm trying to uh, come to grips with something. And so there's, there's the kind of the, the, um, the battle. You can see the battle. Right. And right. I think what I'm trying to do is trying to get, you know, the battle to just totally evaporate. And it's just a sheer joy. Is left. Yeah. Huh. Huh. You know, I, I wonder sometimes if that battle is what produces... If, if, to get rid of the battle, I, I wonder how it will affect your art. Maybe the battle is part of the... <laughs> you know, it, it definitely is. That. You know, I, I do... I, you know, one thing that wasn't mentioned in my biography here was um, I do large... Uh, ab not, ab they're not abstracts, but they're, they're more abstracted landscapes, you might yeah. say. And they definitely have, you can see the battle in it, but it's kind of cool because, you know, I'll take a, a belt sander and, and sand off a layer of paint or sand off some texture, huh. Huh. you know, revealing texture underneath. So there's sort of a, of an oppositional relationship with the paint, you know, yeah. um, but it, it works, you know, so um, it's, uh, it's kind of a different experience, a different frame of mind. But I use all three facets of my, you know my art project: the woodcuts, the acrylics, and the oils, is to try to inform and, and push forward the other the other hmm. forms. Interesting. So there's all there's an interrelationship between them. Very much in so. In some way, so you wouldn't necessarily give up one because it's it's going to influence the work on the others. Exactly. I'll r routinely I'll go. Oh, I'm not going to do any more acrylics anymore. Yeah. You know, I'm going to get rid of all the acrylic out of my studio. It's taking up too much space or whatever. So I'll store them up in my attic or something. And, and, you know, a month later, I've dragged them all down. <laughs> so, you know, I've learned There's that I don't... There's clearly part of you that needs it. <laughs> I don't drag my paint out anymore. You know, right, you know, right now, I'm totally energized with oils. I mean, it's, it's very exciting. Hmm. It's a very exciting moment for me. Well, where can we see your, your work? We've got... Um, we know. I, I know that you have a blog where you regularly have conversations of your own 
with working artists and you share some of your own insights into your work and some of the, the thoughts that you have. What's that website? It's bradtier.blogspot.com. Okay, and that's tier with a E on the end of it. Right. Um, we'll, uh, you, you've also got, um, your Instagram page is is uh, where you put a lot of your own work on it, and that's that's at Brad Tier. Right, I'm, I'm really loving Instagram. It's really working for me. It's my favorite social media. Okay, and you've had some work at Anthony's Fine Art in in Salt Lake. Do you have work also in Logan, where where you live, and and, and other places? You know, if there's collectors, you know, that are interested, um, I do show my work at uh, at the Prince Gallery. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Great. Well, Brad, thank you for choosing uh, LeConte Stewart and for uh, giving us an opportunity not just to talk about his work, but about yours and your very your varied career over the years. Um, I'd like to thank you for coming in. Well, thank you. It's been fun. Um, thank you, everyone, for joining us for this episode of Mormon Visual Culture presented by the Zion Arts Society. You can see the work that Brad Tier has chosen on our website, zionartsociety.org, under the podcast tab, along with work selected by other artists, scholars, and thinkers. If you have work you would like to suggest we discuss, you can contact us on zionartsociety.org. I'm Micah Christensen, and thank you for listening.